0: All you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to the first official episode in 2016 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, ringing in 2016 is nothing less then the thin twin episode of the sls cast yes it turns out that the thin twin electric guitar made from 1952 to 1959 was one of the longest produced guitars ever by the k musical instrument company this particular thin twin guitar was known as the k k 161 that's right folks episode one hundred sixty one of the s l s cast, and I, with that wonderful little bit of thin twin knowledge, am your ever loving host Matt, and coming to us all the way from California in truth would be tim,
1: and what a great two thousand and sixteen it is so far matt and i i I think we deserve a break from the show. here it is, people. Going on vacations for winter break, and we're still doing a show every single week, and not taking any weeks off whatsoever to spend time
0: with their families. That's right. We should take at least three weeks off. Exactly. Maybe at least once a year. Yes. That's what I'm thinking. Maybe we should take another three weeks off. I mean, we (laughs) should just take three weeks off. But no, we can't. Movies
1: must be watched. Movies must be reviewed. People are depending on us.
0: That's well, right. Well, maybe Three, all three, three people. Like Twenty-three of them. Is it thirty-three now? Uh, yeah, yeah, probably about
1: thirty-three. It's it's like it, we fluctuate from thirty-three to like eleven thousand. So,
0: yeah, I just wish that you know I knew how how we could get all these people who hit and everything. And I know they're not all bots. And then you know, I don't know. It is what it is. Maybe they're just... Maybe we're really big in some area of the world that has just recently been shown the internet and they just only know how to listen. We're
1: huge in Cuba.
0: Sure, sure. We are huge. Cuba
1: and Croatia, all the seas. We dominate the seas. Like the little letter C. Like Cabo? Yeah, Cabo. Oh, we're, we're big in Cabo. In sure, fact, we, were, sure. we must be invited. I mean, I would assume they're going to invite
0: us to host... Spring break. That would be great. Although Belize, for me, would be nicer. Very liberal banking laws there.
1: Why do you know this? Do you
0: you have money in Belize? Because, you know, when the time comes that I somehow make my fortune, I need to know what to do with it. So I'll be ready if it ever happens. At this point, I just don't see it ever happening. But uh, anyway, so how how was your holiday season, sir?
1: Busy, busy as hell. Families kind of all split up and just kind of went all over town. Had a drive out to Sugarland a lot. I don't think I've I've, for the twenty four years that I lived in Houston before I moved out in California, I've never spent as much time in Sugarland than I did in the time that I was there for the holidays. And a lot of that was because of shooting. We were doing that short film and a lot of, and there, there's a great company out there called MicroSearch and I'm going to name drop uh, this once because they are awesome. There are a couple film companies in the state of Texas or actually around the Houston area. Not, not, I don't mean film companies like production studios, but rental companies for cameras and, and other equipment like lights and sound equipment for uh for various productions and whatnot. And the other one is called TextCam, and that's the one that all the companies use. But man, that shit can get accepted or can can get accepted. Of course it can get accepted, but it can also get very expensive. But Microsearch, very affordable if you're around in in Houston or in the Houston area even in Austin maybe. Uh check them out there. I mean, they're great, very helpful and Shit, man! It was cheap for all the crap I got, but yeah, no. Spent a lot of time in Sugarland over there, rushing trying to get everything shot and produced. But I do have a story to tell you, Matt. Since uh, I didn't get tell you, I wasn't able to tell you this uh, during the during the break. So one of the shots, one of the scenes that we had a that we had to shoot. Uh, actually, the majority of the film takes place in this cafe in this diner. So we found this place. I'm not going to name the name of it. Uh, that we were going to shoot in. And it was this great, charming little cafe, little diner around Houston. And they closed at a certain time. So we were able to shoot there for uh, the majority of the late afternoon and evening time. And I went not introduce myself to the owner and told him like, hi, we're going to use, uh, we're, we're going to be shooting here. Uh, we're, it's the majority of the script we're going to be shooting here. So it's going to, it's going to take a lot of time. And Uh, in in all this stuff. So uh, in the back of our minds, me and uh, the the woman, the young woman who I was uh, doing this with, we thought, because we kept in correspondence with him via email, and on top of that, I spoke to him and let him know that we are shooting a movie, so it will take some time. We thought that maybe he would know that we would be there longer than an hour and a half, which he thought it would only take an hour and a half. So the entire time he's just kind of pacing, and this is before we even knew it. it was an hour and a half. This we were well about like two and a half hours into shooting, and this guy is pacing around the, the diner cafe, you know, he's you know, he just looks pissed off and upset about something, and I didn't really think anything of it. I just thought that maybe he was just kind of getting a little bored watching us shoot. And so we're going through the pages, we had maybe 15 pages to shoot that afternoon and evening. Uh, And I thought we had plenty of time to do so. And so we're kind of going through it. And maybe at the two and a half hour mark, that's two and a half hours into shooting. We haven't even taken a dinner break or anything like that yet. Working with the actors still, getting sound adjusted and all that jazz. I think we had one one shot down. Like one actual angle all taken care of. Out of multiple shots and multiple angles within each shot. It turns out he thought we were going to only be an hour and a half. So we're like, no, sorry, we're gonna. It's gonna be a little bit longer, you know. Sorry about this. Didn't realize, you know, it was gonna be an hour and a half. And so the entire time, we're trying to avoid him and just keep working as fast as we can. So eventually, that two and a half hours became six hours of shooting because we couldn't stop. We had to get. We had to at least get all the shots we needed. And so we just started packing up immediately. We just kind of avoided him until we had to tell him goodbye. And again, the entire time, he's kind of whistling and talking. You look at some of our shots, and he's kind of in the shot, but both of us were kind of afraid to really ask him to move out of the way (laughs) because we just didn't want to piss him off even you know even more Uh, so we're packing up the car again about five and a half six hours that's well over the hour and a half wait time that he thought it would be Uh, and so we put the i was putting the last box in my car when the producer comes out and she goes tim i think you need to go you need to go talk to him i'm like really yeah you, you probably want to go talk to him too like, yeah, sure, well, I was planning on doing that anyway. So I go in, he already has the place closed down, you know, lights are off, and I kind of wave at him to come out, and he comes out, and I shake his hand, and I, you know, say, sir, thank you so much for letting us use your, uh, use your restaurant. It was a, you know, great location, but I apologize. I didn't realize you, you thought it was going to be an hour and a half, and, and I apologize for the time that, you know, took out of your evening. And again, again, I thought he was just pissed off about the time. Oh, no. No, no, no. It wasn't that at all. In fact, it was this. He returned my handshake with another handshake, and he said, no, no, don't worry about it, Tim. I, you know, I had a lot of fun watching you guys. You know, you guys were... You know, I, I'm not familiar with making movies. I sure do like John Wayne, but I'm not familiar with it, with making movies at all. But you see, I, I have cancer. And, you know, if I don't take my cancer medication... I can't drive, and I start losing. I start like going dizzy and losing my sight and everything. And this entire time, he's just holding my hand and continuing to give me a handshake, telling me about how he really needs his cancer medication. And so he spent. He finishes his his cancer spiel, and I'm just kind of left there, like, "Wow, I didn't realize this was the issue the whole time." And it, I cannot tell you the last time I felt like. I just got the biggest pie in the face. It was rough. So if there's anything that people out there in podcast land must learn from my faults, first thing you got to ask these people, if you're using a, somebody's restaurant or location or whatever, ask if they have cancer and they need medication because
0: yikes. Wow. Um, <laughs> I think we should have let off with like Me. And then closed with that, because I can't follow that shit up. <laughs> uh, we had We had Christmas and New Year's, had a pretty bitchin' uh, block party on Saturday. Nobody needed to take cancer medication to the point of waiting an additional <laughs> six hours freaking the fuck out over it and not being able to drive home. <sighs> well, and welcome back to the SLS cast. Have you missed us, folks? Because if you haven't, I'll bet you, you have now. Send all complaints to ww
1: dot at whitetrash.com dot <laughs> com
0: forward slash <laughs> available in ADHD dot HTML hyphen midnight movie nights backslash sleeping kitty. Sure. <laughs> uh Uh, let's see here. So, should we go ahead and dive into our email box? We
1: probably should dive into that email box. The first email of 2016...
0: Yeah, we got two emails in here for twenty sixteen. And of course you too can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. Uh it turns out we don't have any real email per se, just a couple of Twitter followers, so that's nice, and they uh decided to follow at the SLS Cast. Look at that, how handy. Uh first up, let's see here, way back just before Christmas, we got at lots of book love. And uh, it's just literary quotes. So I'm assuming this is just something that you can go to for literary quotes. Delightful. Also, we have uh, Quadcast Courtney, which is uh, at Quadfather MFT. And uh, I guess uh, Courtney here is a co-host of the Quad, Quadcast podcast. It's a comedy storytelling podcast.
1: We probably gave them plenty of
0: material. Oh yeah, yeah, we should, we'll, yeah, I mean, if they listen to this, they'll have uh you know. So, let me tell you a story about this shitty movie podcast. It's called the SLS cast. If you want to feel better about your life, listen to them. Um <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, these are the uh these are these are our followers now. So that's that's fun. And um
1: all all the other ones unfollowed us. So these are literally our followers. <laughs> we were a part of uh, people's New Year's resolution to not be listened to anymore.
0: Uh, you know, uh, th- that, that wouldn't surprise me. Not anymore, not at this point. It would not surprise me at all. <sighs> well, there's a news. Re- you know, here's the freshness of the new year, and, and everybody's looking forward to the clean slate and New Year's resolutions, and the- and you're listening to this, and you're 14 minutes in, and you're like, What the fuck am I doing with my life? That's probably what you're feeling right now. Well, here's what you're doing with your life you're listening to this podcast with these two schlubs as hosts, and they are going to do news. Shall we do news? We must do news. Then let us do it, folks. It's the news. (laughs) And first up, the first news item of the SLS cast for 2016. From ZapToIt.com by way of Kayla Hawkins, Quentin Tarantino sued for a staggering $100 million over originality of Django. That's right, folks. Quentin Tarantino's scripts, many of which are available online, are unmistakable. His writing style, like his cinematic style, is unique, and he often openly admits his influences. But according to The Rap and Variety, on Christmas Eve 2015, two writers brought a lawsuit for $100 million against Tarantino and his production slash distribution companies for allegedly infringing, infringing on the copyright of Freedom, a script they registered with the Writers Guild in 2004. And while the final cut of Django certainly feels like an unmistakably Tarantino film, there are plenty of similarities between Freedom and Django Unchained, since both films are about a free black man and former slave who returns to the South in order to save his family. The lawsuit alleges that defendant Tarantino... I'm sorry. The lawsuit avenge, avenges alleges that, quote, defendant Tarantino took the plot lines and main story of freedom and Tarantinoized them, end quote, reports the rap um yeah i i don't know i mean it's really hard to say because after looking at the article in the rap after looking at variety and everything i mean these guys it it kind of It kind of seems like they could have a case, but I think it's ultimately going to be like the lady who wrote Harold Porter and the mysterious cavern or whatever the fuck it was. Um, Just because you have elements of a story that kind of unfold in very similar fashions does not mean that one was taken directly from the other. Because that's what happened with this Harold Porter thing. Uh, This lady came across, obviously, Harry Potter and was like, oh my god, J.K. Rowling ripped me off. And on the face of it, it really kind of looked bad. But once it went to court and they were able to really break it down, it wasn't what it looked like at first. So, I don't know if... I'm I'm kind of thinking that's where this is going to go, but... I don't know. Did you read anything about this, Tim? What are, what are your thoughts? If any.
1: No, I didn't really hear too much about it, but I'm reading the plot of this Freeman movie, and this is from, yeah, slashfilm.com. It says this, Before Django Freeman, there was an escaped slave named Jackson Freeman who desired to purchase his family's freedom from a mal- uh, malvolent, malviolent, 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 out. Malvolent. Leveling? Yeah, that's what I meant. Plantation owner reads the suit. Before Dr. Schultz, there was Samson, another white man, who would assist Mr. Freeman in his efforts to rescue loved ones from slavery. To clarify, quote, returning to the hellish realm of the South to purchase the freedom of his loved ones with the assistance of a Caucasian in the South is the uniquely original beat that links Django and Chain to freedom, end quote. The suit paints. Tarantino, as an quote, admitted thief, end quote, referencing his oft-repeated quote, quote, I steal from every single movie
0: ever made, end quote. Uh, hmm. See, but that's what I'm saying. So, so, like, okay, what you're reading is, again, it's true. Like, I mean, the, on the face of it, there do seem to be some very troubling similarities. But the thing is, is that, in real life, there were multiple cases of back in the Civil War or pre Civil War, or whatever, there were multiple cases of escaped slaves who went, who attained their freedom and then went back and bought their family back or, you know, whatever work deals out. And just because those two things happened doesn't mean that they were the exact same story that unfolded the exact same way. And. Um, that's kind of what's weird about this one is that I kind of think it's, I mean, I just don't know where to go. I, I don't think that Tarantino literally meant I steal, uh, you know, with the intent to never give credit and, you know, produce my, I think it's just kind of the idea of everything he sees influences everything he makes. Um, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm
1: already. I'm reading the credits, uh, the credits, the comments, and somebody wrote, and and it took them this long to invent their story because any good writer would know that the alleged critical beat about a Caucasian being needed to help a Negro in that situation is not unique. It's one of the only three ways the story could work. One, he goes alone. Two, he goes with a fellow Negro. Or three, more ironically, he needs help from a white man hmm gee it's so hard to guess which one is more believable powerful and appealing to a wider audience not they should be blacklisted for being so stupid
0: <laughs> uh, that's pretty good oh man i don't know why this reminded me uh what you just read uh, reminded me of this but it did so i'm going to jump in right here with this real quick it's not even news <clears throat> Um, as we were talking about before the show, I was saying how I went and I saw uh, Star Wars for the second sure. time today. Yeah, And they played, not only did they play the Star Trek trailer, um, which I thought was in its own way some fun irony. But they also played the Gods uh, of Egypt trailer. and Or Gods in Egypt, whatever. The, the one that we've been talking about that was got in trouble for the whitewashing and all that kind of stuff. That you said you wanted to see. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. The uh, Alex Poyas movie.
0: Yeah. And I'm sitting there watching it. And there's uh Clive Owen? No. But, Gerard, yeah, Gerard, Butler, no, Clive, Gerard Gerard Butler. Gerard Butler. Sorry. And he's like screaming and stuff. And he here he is. He's this head of this one house. And then you got the guy from... You know, Jamie Lannister guy. And I'm watching this trailer. And I'm like did anybody else just expect gerard butler to scream this is cairo at any point because i really wanted to do that and then kick a dude down a hole because i swear to god it kind of felt like that was going to happen the whole time
1: (laughs) and kick a dude down a hole
0: seriously not this is sparta but this is cairo right because that's that's kind of where egypt is today i thought it was clever motherfucker Laugh. Well, I do like how three
1: hundred will always be that movie where the dude kicks another dude down a hole or (laughs) into a hole. Like, oh, that's that's you can you can say okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna describe a movie, you know, for you. You guess what it is, and you say that people will (laughs) automatically say three hundred. I mean, first you might have to rule out, you know, not porn. I'm not talking about porn. I'm talking about a real film. Sure. Sticking with Tarantino, something from Collider.com here. Mad Max Fury Road is the best film of 2015, says Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino hasn't seen, or I guess I should say this is written by Nick Romano. This came out, uh, this was published on December 23rd. So this is uh, uh, break news, during the break news. Quentin Tarantino hasn't seen that many films this year, which is understandable. He spent much of his time finishing up work on The Hateful Eight and preparing both a 70mm roadshow and a cut for the film's wider release in addition to making the process rounds or making the press rounds to promote the damn thing. But out of the films he has seen, he deems George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road the best of the year. French outlet Premiere caught up with Tarantino on the red carpet for an international release of the Hateful Late and asked him for the filmmaker's top film of 2015, quote, it would have to be Mad Max movie Fury Road, And quote, he continued, I got a print of Mad Max on 35mm and I watched it in my house and I had it all weekend and I ended up watching it three different times and I resisted seeing it for a while because I was like, Mad Max without Mel Gibson? forget that. In a world where Mel Gibson exists, how can you cast Tom Hardy? So I even wanted to get all defiant about it, and hashtag not my max. Then I saw the movie, and okay, it's terrific, and he's pretty good in it, I have to admit. End all quotes there. So I, I thought this was kind of interesting, worth noting, because one, it, it's funny how people pick up on whatever Tarantino says. And I do I, I do like hearing what he does have to say about certain things, especially his favorite movie of the year. But what gets me about websites like Collider and, and other uh, movie websites, I really don't want to single out Collider uh, on this, but because they're the ones that did publish this one, what people don't realize is that he hasn't seen every movie. He hasn't seen uh, Room, which uh, what so far has been my favorite movie of the award season that uh, that uh, I've watched uh, this past year. Probably not. Hasn't seen. Oh man, the short. The, I don't, not the short bus. I'm gonna call it the short bus, but I'm pretty sure it's not called the short bus. But it's the one with like Brad Pitt and Steve Carell about the housing crisis that we'll probably be reviewing in the next weaker so so he hasn't been able to see a lot of these smaller more independent films that are actually really good but yet they publish it as this is his all-time favorite movie and he has seen them all i think that's kind of what people automatically assume but i what i wanted to ask you matt is that quentin tarantino isn't the only one who had said that Mad Max Fury Road is their favorite film. Uh, You have, I think, maybe... Was it the Critics' Choice or the People's Choice? Or various news outlets like the Los Angeles Times, I think, and uh, and other kind of like Critics' Choice Awards type type of societies and whatnot. Loved, absolutely loved Mad Max Fury Road. In fact, people are expecting it to be nominated for possibly... Uh, I mean, in addition to, like, best sound or best uh, special effects, but even best film of the year, do you think people are just jumping the gun because for most people it was just a pleasant surprise? Or uh, on top of that, do you even think that people often jump the gun way too much, especially with, like, the release of, like, Star Wars and and, and kind of, like, the the business of overhyping something like that?
0: Well, okay, I think... I think why movies like Mad Max: Fury Road get singled out not are not necessarily because they are so unique or that they are necessarily more deserving than anything else. I think it's a simple fact that it did. To this movie did two things: like it or hate it, or you know, anywhere in between. This movie did two things. Number one, it made the case for less CGI and more practical effects. Um, which is something that has been sorely, sorely missed in the last decade. And it also was a premise by a director coming returning to a franchise that flat out delivered. And you just don't see that very much anymore. And I think that's why it's it's got all that gravitation is because those two things are so rare today that it doesn't matter whether or not they've seen other movies or that they've seen all of the movies. Um, because you can't really compare Mad Max to The Room, even though I haven't seen The Room yet. Because not only are they completely different genres... They're trying to achieve completely different things. And I think that for someone who is like Tarantino, and it's pretty evident based on his pedigree and his influences and his style, that while I'm sure he would, uh, you know, if he saw The Room, he may come away saying that was a great movie. He may not. I would probably think he would more than likely say that. I'm assuming that it, given all the praise and everything, uh, when I see it, I will not hate it but it's simply just not the same thing and it seems to me this is more up tarantino's alley not waiting on other movies not waiting on star you know star wars or anything like that i think it's kind of irrelevant in that regard but um and it was just i think it's just because um the fury road kind of became the oasis for How action movies need to be made and how to tell a minimalistic uh, or a a rich and full story with minimalist dialogue. And um, yeah. And I think it's just that kind of that, you know, the shining city on the hill, more or less. Right on. That was probably way longer than you were looking for. No, it's fine.
1: And it was The Big Short. (laughs) That was the movie. I was trying to say earlier, but was calling the short bus.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, All right, I have got a trio of stories here real quick because they are all involving um, sequels or sequel talk. First up, from uh, Australian abc news uh this is abc.net.au uh and this comes to us by way of hmm there is no direct attribution on this so i guess we're just going to go with it comes to us from news Uh, It says, Indiana Jones to return for fifth film, Disney CEO Bob Iger confirms. It's official. Disney has confirmed everyone's favorite bullwhip-toting archaeologist. Indiana Jones will be back for another movie. Wrapping this part up quickly, it just says CEO Bob Iger announced the news during an interview with Bloomberg on the recent Star Wars sequel, The Force Awakens, promising, quote, more great stories with George Lucas's Star Wars and Indiana Jones, by the way, which will be coming, end quote. Um, there is currently no word on the release date possible plot or cast but we all know that Harrison Ford has wanted to come back again I don't know why and uh, Spielberg is has been quoted as saying uh, quote as long as there's more adventures out there I've got a bullwhip a fedora a leather jacket and a man on a horse who knows how to get the job done end quote so we have that uh, let's see here, from themirror.co.uk, Christoph Waltz will return in two more Bond movies, but, quote, only if Daniel Craig does two. That's right. And since he was alive at the end of the um, Spectre, he could theoretically come back. Um, that's really all this article has to say about anything. If you, It goes into a little bit more detail about uh, Daniel Craig kind of backtracking on his I'd Rather Slash My Wrist stuff. But ostensibly, if uh, Daniel Craig's in, Christoph Waltz is in too. Finally, in this little trio, we've got from comicbookresources.com. And this is by way of... My goodness, people, you guys need to like put your stuff where I can see it so I can properly credit you. Or I'm just not going to be able to do that. Uh, Oh, here we go. Anthony uh, Couteau, assistant editor. Uh, It says, Joss Whedon confirms he's done with Marvel movies and clarifies when he left. That's right, folks. Uh, Joss Whedon has confirmed that he won't be involved with the Marvel Cinematic Universe in any creative capacity after wrapping up his work on Avengers Age of Ultron last year. Uh, From an interview with Oxford Union, Uh, which is courtesy of Cosmic Book News. It says the following. The question was, will you have any involvement in the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe? Uh, Whedon, quote, no. You know I was there, sort of consigliere for a while. Uh, But I sort of had my finger in all the films in the second phase. But then I just had to concentrate only on Ultron and sort of know when it was done, I was just going to stop. So I made a completely clean break. Not because we had a falling out. Just because I was like, I can't. If I was still going, well, here are my thoughts on this film. I'd be there every day. I wouldn't do anything else because there are a lot of films and it is a lot of fun. Uh, And I'm, and I'm going to end the quote there. If you'd like to read the full quote and or watch the entire interview, you can from this website. Um, But yeah, so he hasn't had anything to do with any of the Marvel stuff, uh, which means he didn't do anything um, for Ant-Man. And he, well, I I mean, whatever, kind of touched Ant-Man, but that's it so he's done he's out and love it hate it happy sad that's where it is so those are my little pieces there any questions comments concerns there sir about the indiana jones or the christoph waltz or the joss whedon action so concerning
1: bond or concerning whedon I you know I think it's about time that Marvel need you know I think Marvel should find somebody else to be their man behind the curtain because you never want to put all your ducks in one pond and I'm not saying that they're necessarily doing that but I know like what you're talking about Joss Whedon tweaked doctored a lot of the scripts most of the scripts for phase 2 and you don't want one person to be the only one that's really doing that because all the movies will 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 have the same kind of flair and flavor to it uh depending on the movie and that's never good so i think this is kind of like a, a blessing in disguise in a way uh, or maybe not even a blessing in disguise is i mean just he should just move on and go and do some other stuff and not even return to the marvel avengers universe or anything like that so i think that's good awesome as for uh bond daniel craig should just stop doing bond I don't care. I really don't necessarily like him as Bond. Uh, and if Christoph Waltz won't come back to do it, that's fine. I don't think either of us were really <laughs> digging him as you know, are or, or really going to miss out on on his character portrayal. No. And what was the first oh, thing you talked yeah. about? I forgot.
0: Iger said that there will be another Indiana Jones.
1: Movie. Oh yeah, um, if it's done right, I think it could be cool because it doesn't have to be a crazy action movie like they were going for with uh, with with Kingdom of the Crystal Skull uh, or not even like the third Indiana or not even with the Last Crusade because Last Crusade was even kind of uh, a lot more crazy action in it than not crazy action but more action than probably the first two Indiana Jones movies combined. But it could be something fun. Yeah, but Last
0: Crusade was definitely good. Oh,
1: The Last Crusade was fantastic. I didn't mean that in a bad way whatsoever. I'm just saying that it could be more along the lines of Temple of Doom, which yes, of course, that has action in it. But I think it's kind of more like the action that he'd, if he were to do anything remotely like those scenes now, it would still be a little bit more believable. And no need for Shia LaBeouf swinging with, with monkeys and whatnot. (laughs) um but continuing with my news 2015 national film registry uh this came out a couple weeks ago they announced which movies were going into the registry uh this past year uh and i'm just going to list them being there from 1979 black and tan from 1929 dracula the spanish language version this is where i read about it from 1931 Dream of a rare uh, rare bit friend. Uh, Oh, and by the way, the Dracula Spanish language version one, I'll let Matt talk about that one. We were kind of discussing it a little bit uh, during the pre-show, and I don't want to take his thunder away from that one.
0: Wait, say what?
1: About the Spanish language version of Dracula.
0: Oh, no, well, go ahead. Throw it in there. I mean... I mean, it, that was just kind of a bonus thing we were talking about. I wasn't really going to bring
1: it. Okay, up. yeah, I'll swing back and I'll I'll read it from here. Uh, so after the 1931 Spanish language Dracula, the dream of rare bit friend from 1906, Edward Moybridge Zoopraxographer from 1975. Edison Kinetoscope recording a record of a sneeze from 1894, uh, which any of you who have taken a film class uh, you and it covered silent film or the beginning of film more likely you have definitely seen this very short piece of early film footage. A fool was there from 1915. Ghostbusters, which most of us have seen from 1984. Hail the Conquering Hero, 1944. Humoresque, 1920. Imitation of Life, 59. The Inner World of Aphasia, from 68. John Henry and the Inky Pooh, from 1946. L.A. Confidential, from 1997. The Mark of Zorro, from 1920. The Old Mill, I mean the Old Mill, from 1937. Our Daily Bread, from 1934. Portrait of Jesus god damn i can't read portrait of jason from 1967 seconds from 1966 the shawshank redemption from 1994 i don't think any of you have seen shawshank uh sink or swim from 1990 the story of mince i was about to say the story of menstruation but it's not menstruation it is the story of menstruation from 1946 Symbi- okay, uh, there's a lot of these I can't read, but I'm just going to end it with uh, Winchester 73 from 1950 and Top Gun from 1986. Really happy to see Hal Ashby's being there on here, but I guess I will go ahead and talk about what they have written here for the Spanish-language version of Dracula from 1931. It says here on loc.gov slash today slash PR slash 2015 Before the advent of sound, the only significant difference between films seen by domestic audiences and foreign ones was the language of the subtitles, which could be adapted for each market. When talkies arrived, American studios began shooting foreign language versions for international and non-English speaking domestic markets. Generally, at the same time, they filmed the English versions— And one of the most famous examples of this practice, a second crew, including a different director and stars, shot at night on the same sets used during the day for the English version of the Bram Stoker classic starring Bela Lugosi and directed by Todd Browning. In recent years, the Spanish version of the film, which is 20 minutes longer, has been lauded as superior in many ways to the English one, some theorizing that the that the Spanish-language crew had the advantage of watching the English dailies and improving on camera angles and making more effective use of lighting. Directed by George Melford, best known for the Valentino sensation The Chic, the Spanish version starred Carlos Villarias, billed as Carlos Villar, as Conde Dracula, Lupita Tovar, as Eva Seward, Barry Norton as Juan Harker, and Pablo Alvarez Rubio as Reinfeld, or Rainfeld or Reinfeld. And yeah, that's the Spanish-language version of Dracula, and this is definitely one that we will have to compare with the English-language version with Bela Lugosi uh, this next Halloween, so that should be fun. Uh, next up... With the Spectre film that recently came out, you know, the movie that neither of us really cared for all too much, one aspect of the film that neither of us, well, I think both of us, agreed on was a major low point for the franchise was Sam Harris's song. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it was not (laughs) named Spectre. Well, it turns out Radiohead actually made their own specter theme song and it got overshadowed by the sam harris specter theme song and i must say they should have indeed went with the radiohead version because it's not your run-of-the-mill sam smith or or your run-of-the-mill james bond type of sounding uh sounding theme song i mean with the sam oh it's called writings on the wall that's the name of the sam smith uh With writings of the wall, you have the big horns, you have the big strings. It's very grandiose sounding. And it's kind of like it's a major contrast to what happened at the start of the film. You go from this big, crazy helicopter fight scene to this very wimpy sounding, grandiose theme song. Which really doesn't work. At least with the Radiohead song. You have strings and the percussion and it's just more interesting to listen to. It's not like great or spectacular or anything, but it is definitely better, uh, the better of the two. And I highly recommend you guys checking it out. Uh, it's a it's by Radiohead, and it was released via their uh, their SoundCloud site, and I believe you can also find it on. Uh, youtube as well and their song is just called specter so it should be pretty easy to find radiohead uh, slash specter or dash specter lastly for me since we're getting kind of late on the news here via gizmodo.com this one pertaining to star trek man we've been kind of going around in circles with the topics for this this news piece or this news segment from gizmodo.com Wrong thing I am reading from the TheRap.com. Star Trek fan film producer sued by CBS and Paramount. This is written by Joe Otterson and was published December 30th. And it says this. Companies claim crowdfunded project Xanar violates copyright law. Matt, I know you're a fan of this. Was I pronouncing this right? Was it Axanar or Xanar?
0: Axanar.
1: Axanar. Um this was updated uh, somewhat recently Paramount Pictures and CBS Studios issued a joint statement on the suit to the rap Paramount Pictures and CBS Studios are suing the producer of the crowd-funded Star Trek film fan film Axenar the companies are going after producer Alex Peters of Axonar Productions for copyright infringement in a suit filed Wednesday in California District Court. The suit concerns Axonar in the prequel film Prelude to Axonar, collectively referred to as the Axonar Works. The Axonar Works infringes plaintiffs' works by using innumerable copyrighted elements of Star Trek, including its settings, characters, species, and themes. The complaint reads. CBS and Paramount, Paramount are seeking up to $150,000 for every copyrighted Star Trek element present in the films. Wow, and yikes for them $150,000 per copyright that was violated. In a joint statement to The Wrap, Paramount and CBS said this, Star Trek is a treasured franchise in which CBS and Paramount continue to produce new original content for its large universe of fans. The producers of Axenar are making a Star Trek picture. They describe themselves as a fully professional independent Star Trek film. Their activity clearly violates our Star Trek copyrights, which, of course, we will continue to vigorously protect, "In quote. Axanar follows Garth of Izar, a Federation captain from Star Trek, the original series, who was idolized by Captain Kirk. According to the description of the film's official website, or on the film's official website... Axanar tells the story of Garth and his crew during the Four Years' War, the war with the Klingon Empire that almost tore the Federation apart. Garth's victory of Axanar solidified the Federation and allowed it to become the entity we know in Kirk's time. In an interview with The Wrap in August, Peter said he and his team met with CBS, but the network didn't offer any specific guidelines... Any specific guidelines concerning what his crew can and cannot do. The network simply told him that they can't make money off the project. Quote, CBS has a long history of accepting fan films, end quote. Peter said at the time. Quote, I think Axnar has become so popular that CBS realizes that we're just making their brand that much better. End all quotes there. Uh, they just go on and talk more about the Kickstarter campaign and uh, and how much they made and what they were initially asking for. And it's pretty interesting here. Um, or, and it's pretty interesting to read all this stuff because this isn't the only fan-made Star Trek project out there. There have been multiple Kickstarter and uh, Indiegogo and GoFundMe pages, I think, of of various Star Trek series, where they're actually going and making additional episodes of the original Star Trek shows that came out originally in the '60s with William Shatner, and tells uh, more tales or features more tales of Captain Kirk and Spock and the rest of the Enterprise crew so this is by no means something that is brand new this is stuff that has been happening for many years now i i'm I'm not familiar with uh with with all the star trek fan films or fan tv shows out there but i i mean i've seen stuff from mid to late 2000s even so matt what do you think i know you uh you, you have a pretty strong
0: stance on one side of this argument uh well yeah cbs is totally just uh they're literally cutting off their nose despite their face i think that um they are finally seeing what can happen when uh people who have talent vision and backing and a few hollywood connections limited as they are these are not i mean there's not spielberg types but they have been able to pool excellent talent from the Star Trek universe, or literally, from like Tony Todd and stuff. These are people who have actually portrayed characters on TNG, who have had actual stuff with the original series. Also, people from other great sci fi series like Battlestar Galactica. Um, so, you're getting real talent and everything, and you've got people who have dedicated. Uh, special effects backing and stuff, and they're actually good at it. I mean, it's not like they are blowing up the world over here. Nobody's making any money. People are working for scale or donating their time or whatever. Um, And if you watch, I mean, I tell everybody, just take 20 minutes and go watch Prelude to Axanar, and you will understand just exactly what this is going to look like and I think CBS is running scared and if anything with the new Star Trek movie coming out um how scared do you have to be of what your movie is going to do if you're worried about a prequel from a universe thing that's from 50 years ago I mean are you kidding me um it just is so infuriating uh, and, and, and of course, they also are trying to get something out for TV themselves this year, CBS's, and in in the Star Trek world. I don't know. This is just a terrible, terrible move by them. And if, if they had just done this themselves, which they were stupid enough to not do in the first place, then, you know, they wouldn't be in this position anyway. So, fuck them.
1: They yeah, just need to come out with a good... Star Trek product. Yeah. So all they got to do. Know.
0: There you go. All right. Well, I'm just very, 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 very fast uh, from, this is my last piece, disneyblog.com by way of John Frost. Uh, this was initially uh, published yesterday. It has been updated for today as well. Uh, and, of course, today being the 4th of January, 2016, <clears throat> as we record Star Wars The Force Awakens will pass Avatar to become number one movie early this week. That's right, folks. And this is domestically. Uh, it's gotta get 2.788 billion. That's what, it's gotta beat that in order to beat Avatar worldwide. It has not opened in China yet, which is the number two market in the world. That happens on the first, but it is already at, um, Let's see here, 704 plus 88, so 794, it's basically at 800 million right now, um, which is just $20 million shy of Avatar's domestic record, and is already over $1.51 billion globally. So, yeah, um, there you go. Uh, I don't think that's really surprising anyone, but it's really going fast. And that is... The News. And by the time Ooh. you listen
1: to this, <laughs> it has definitely probably well surpassed
0: that number, I yes, would think. Yes, it will definitely be the number one domestic winner uh, beating out Avatar. Um, all right, and see, that's what happens when you go three weeks without news. <laughs> you get a buttload of news. Um, all right, so we are going to go ahead and jump into... Three Square. Square. And this week's three squared uh, overhyped movies as we enter into the Oscar season and also on top of which we are going into uh, the promo mode for uh, all the movies coming out in the spring and also teaser very, very early teasers for things that could come out in May that are going to jump you up for the summer. We're going to talk about some movies that we feel were some, just completely overhyped. Now, the movies themselves may or may not have been financial successes, but when looking back on them, the movies themselves were uh, debatably underwhelming, to be sure. However, they were super-duper overhyped uh, at, the, at the time of their release or leading into their release. Uh, would you like to start, Tim, or would you like me to start? you please i'm my uh, my cold or whatever the hell is infecting me
1: is uh need, needing to be tamed by emergency <laughs>
0: okay all right let's see here so uh we have got for me I am going to be doing I'm gonna do these in reverse chronological order uh they it's not by whether or not I think they're better movies than others or what have you but these are definitely uh just reverse chronological order for me so from 2006 we are going to begin with superman returns and this movie is canonically supposed to basically kind of replace superman 3 it's kind of coming in after superman 2 and then it pretends that the other two movies didn't exist um it stars Brandon Routh as the titular Superman and was directed by Brian Singer. Um this is a movie that people were just ridiculously looking forward to for many many moons ahead as soon as they heard Brian Singer got a hold of it um you know he's coming off of the X-Men stuff that he's been doing and He is just like uh, seemingly unstoppable. He's got Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor and everything. So you've got these just mammoth um, titans in really good positions. And then you have this relative unknown in Brandon Routh, but someone who definitely seems to look and embody the part and the previews come out and you see the suit and how awesome it looks and you see in the thing and he's getting shot in the eye and the bullet just completely like disintegrates on his eye and all these amazing things that are coming and then you finally get the film and you're like what what happened why is this movie so long Why are they talking so much? Why doesn't Superman do cool shit? And then Superman finally does some cool shit, and you're like, well, isn't this the most impossibly over-the-top motherfucking shit you've ever seen? Huh. And yet you're still left feeling with this sense of just completely underwhelmed. And I was a big, big defender of this film when it came out. And I bought it on DVD and I watched it again and I was like, nope, it's still good, it's still good. And over the years I've kind of felt, you know, maybe it was a little too long. And then um, earlier last year I tried to watch it, probably May, June-ish, I tried to sit down and watch the movie again. I'm like, ah man, time for some Superman. Pop it on. I made it like forty minutes in, and I had to stop. It, it just—it hasn't aged well. Um, Ooh, that makes me feel so
1: ch- good. Listening, hearing you say that, we've had arguments right. about this movie.
0: <laughs> okay,
1: why? Uh, what? What? You said you liked it. You used to. We, we had an argument over it some time ago. I did
0: like it. I know. I. So I don't like it anymore. <laughs> Um, But I think that even though it did not uh, get its sequel, I think, however, that it should have gotten a sequel because I believe that the property, while it hasn't aged well and it was too long, still showed the promise that Superman had before we got Man of Steel. And I think that it would have been... It was totally ripe for getting a proper sequel and being able to set up to fix the issues that Superman Returns created. All that being said, this movie was just retardedly overhyped. Moving into the next film from 2004 uh, is Alexander. It's the epic historical drama film based on Alexander the Great, uh, directed by Oliver Stone and starred Colin Farrell in the titular role of alexander uh as well as angelina jolie as his mom and and there was no oedipus stuff going on there either all right so you've got like dvd commentary by anthony hopkins in this movie um thank you watch mojo that's a very good quote and uh complete lackluster battle scenes when there are any and one of the most ridiculous storylines ever and Colin I just this was back in the time when Colin Farrell could do no wrong um, on the plus side if you're at all a fan of Rosario Dawson she gets very very naked in this movie that's about the only thing that I took away as a positive and this film was blown up to hell and back. It was supposed to be like the next big major Tits and Togas epic pick uh, that was supposed to be taken so seriously. It was like the next Ben-Hur and all this kind of... And it just... No. I mean, it did a little bit better um, worldwide in terms of reception than it did in the States. It got pretty trashed in the States. But... It didn't ultimately make much more than its just initial regular budget back, so meh, what are you gonna do? Um, I, I yeah, it's it's kind of just kind of not worth it. Uh, finally, we're going way back, way way back to nineteen ninety five and the first film in like ever to be marketed as nc-17 that's right folks the amazing showgirls uh all right so when you're the high point of your life is saved by the bell naturally you want to break away from that and get into more adult fare and try and uh you know show a different side of yourself uh much like anne hathaway moving into more adult roles, doing some nudity and stuff to try and get away from the princess diaries, right? Well, where Anne Hathaway succeeded, poor Elizabeth Berkeley failed spectacularly. With lines like, I'm going to shop at Versailles. How could you go wrong? <laughs> so girls, this is an erotic drama film and it talks about a girl who uh is it's it's, it's, she's a drifter who works her way from stripper to showgirl because nudity as a showgirl on a stage with other naked girls is somehow better than doing it on a pole for a few hundred bucks a night i don't know um Yeah, movie stars Kyle McClanahan as well and Gina Gershon. Um, this was just retardedly overhyped. It, and it was all hinging on the fact that it was Elizabeth Berkley coming straight off uh, straight, Saved by the Bell at the time. That it was going to be nude. It was NC-17 in your face. And then kapow! Yeah, we're not we're we're grabbing this fucking rating by the gills and taking it for all it's worth, and it's flashy and it's Vegas and it's how it works and it's ice on the nipples whether you like it or not. And then you watch the movie and you're like, it's it's like you're looking around going, I don't am I supposed to laugh? I'm not sure. I don't want to laugh if it's meant to be serious, but I'd like to laugh if it's funny. Um, and. Yeah, just pull up YouTube, look up, you know, showgirls clips. It's pretty good. The hospital scene, especially, is pretty funny. Um, the dry humping scene is good. Um, also funny. I think probably the pool sex is definitely the most interesting. Um, I just, you know, I, i i literally don't know what they were thinking this movie has since garnered a uh cult following um it was a huge budget film didn't even make back its budget um but it's not good and was just super hyped to the fucking max so those are my movies superman returns from 2006 alexander from 2004 and showgirls from 1995 what do you got there tim
1: all right, so I'm going to start with... Actually, all of my movies are from the 2000s. Uh, I guess I was just super let down by, by a lot of movies that came out during my formative junior high, high school years. Uh, I'm going to start off with the career-ending film for uh, Wolfgang Peterson, it seems like. From 2006, first up, Poseidon. That's right, the remake of the classic Gene Hackman film The Poseidon Adventure, I mean, one could even argue that the Poseidon Adventure really isn't that great of a film to begin with, but it's still entertaining as shit, and it's significantly better than the remake, um, as what some of you may remember, or maybe not, not only is it directed by Wolfgang Peterson, but it stars Kurt Russell, Josh Lucas, Richard Dreyfuss, Emmy uh, and some other folk. The movie cost had a budget of $160 million, and uh, the box office intake was only $181.7 million. One might say, but wait, it made $21.7 million. However, no, due to all the other costs and how well the movie did not do domestically, the movie lost an estimated $69 million, which is not good whatsoever. And it's a shame because Wolfgang Peterson has directed many great films. For example, Troy is a really good movie. The Perfect Storm is a good movie. Um, Air Force One, In the Line of Fire, uh, The Never Ending Story, and his most probably famous film, If not, one of the best films of all time is 1981's Das Boot, uh, which is a a definite classic. And Poseidon, Das Boot, it is not. It is no boot. It is no Das Boot. Um, So yes, Poseidon from 2006 is my first film. Next up from 2004, just two years earlier, (laughs) is... The remake, the remake of the 1960s John Wayne film, The Alamo, that is right. So what really got me excited uh, uh, for The the Alamo is kind of the same thing that got me, that I I was super excited amped up for for Poseidon, and I think it was kind of the same way for a lot of other folks, is that a lot of people, uh, not only me, but those that were born in the 50s and grew up in the 60s and the 70s, who would watch, like, the John Wayne Alamo film, or even the Poseidon Adventure on cable, on TV even, uh, on reruns, or even went saw it at the movie theater. I mean, these are very formative films that came out at that time, and on top of that, they were very entertaining. Uh, their production was... The production were, were were grand and big. They built real sets at this time. And it was... They were both cleverly written, more so uh, the Alamo than the, than the Poseidon Adventure. Um, but then you turn to the 2000s when CGI movies were booming... Uh, this kind of started at the end of the nineties when every every big movie or every movie, it seemed like had some CGI in it. And a lot of these movies, the CGI was cheap and it really didn't age well past two years. And that was the case for Poseidon. I really didn't talk about the CGI, but the CGI really isn't that great. Uh, as well as, as well as the stunts and stuff like that. And, uh, outside of the character work, there really isn't much to the movie. However, with the Alamo, it maybe could have used some CGI, maybe let alone a battle or two, because there is no battle whatsoever in the film, the Alamo. Um, this version of the film is more politics and less war. It was showing the political side of the, uh, of, of, those fighting the, for the Alamo fighting for Texas independence and those of, uh, the Mexicans, uh, Santa Ana and the Mexican party. Um, And on top of all of this, this just turned out to be the movie that none of us were expecting. Beforehand, Imagine Entertainment, which is Ron Howard's company, uh, was originally supposed to be making this film. Uh, Ron Howard was going to direct the movie. Brian Grazer, his partner who has produced, actually, most uh, most of Ron Howard's movies, Was going to be the producer. And Russell Crowe was originally cast as Sam Houston. Ethan Hawke uh, was going to be William Barrett Travis. And uh, then Billy Bob Thornton was going to continue on being... Or or was going to be uh, Davy Crockett. And Billy Bob Thornton ended up being David Crockett later on. But we did miss out on Russell Crowe as Sam Houston. He departed after Ron Howard left. So after Ron Howard and Brian Grazer and Imagine Entertainment left... Disney took over and Disney produced The Alamo. So there is no blood, there is no violence, just politics. And every single time, it just gets annoying. You know, it's kind of like the ending of 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 Hunger Games Part 2 or more so like the Return of the King, Lord of the Rings Return of the King, where there are multiple endings. For Return of the King, there's like seven endings. Well, there are like multiple. I haven't seen this movie since I originally saw it at the movie theater, The Alamo I'm talking about. There are multiple points or times during the movie where a battle is about to take place, where there's a shootout, where uh where uh, where the Mexican army is advancing on top of the Alamo, Alamo or, or advancing towards the Alamo and there could have been some like little action scenes and whatnot. And I know, I'm not talking about like a big all out war because obviously there wasn't an all out war, you know, throughout the, you know, throughout the entire battle of the Alamo. Uh, as in like throughout the entire length or the duration of the battle i mean it was just like a lot of little a lot of little different uh, smaller altercations which led to bigger altercations as the uh, you know as the whole uh, battle kind of kind of went on but there was definitely some tense moments and in this movie there were no tense moments because every time that something kind of sort of happens it's the next day <laughs> And the movie moves on from there, and nothing really ever happens. Uh, And on top of all that, there are a number of historical inaccuracies that I think really just turned people off. On a budget of $170 million, this movie only took in $25 million at the box office, and it lost an estimated $94 million dollars. So yes, that was The Alamo from 2004, and finally, a movie that I actually enjoyed. Um, And I felt a little weird putting it on, well, I didn't feel weird putting it on here, but um, I I actually liked this film from 2001, the uh, video game adaptation of Final Fantasy, entitled Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. A, a really solid movie uh even i think roger ebert gave it like three and a half out of four stars and he defended the movie and he pretty much said that while the movie uh, lacks what it lacks in story development or, or character development it has a solid story uh, overall story the characters are believable and the movie itself is just damn beautiful because this movie there has never been a movie like this film at this time in 2001. Um, the character of um the character of Aki a- 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 or Aki Ross who is the main uh, the main female character was the world's first photorealistic computer animated actress. Um and that really didn't really that didn't even capture People's attention all that much this movie practically bombed Uh, with a budget of 137 million dollars the box office intake was 85.1 million dollars so it lost an estimated 94 million dollars as well it didn't even do that well in japan i think it uh, what i was reading here on wikipedia did well like in australia and south korea i think and it, it you know didn't do well here even with alec baldwin uh, well, with a voice cast of uh, Alec Baldwin, James Woods, Donald Sutherland, Ving Rhames, Steve Bushe- uh and Steve Buscemi, just nothing really, you know, didn't really produce that much uh, interest. So I think on top of that, it was also following a slew of other video, games, video game adaptations that bombed at the box office. As well as the director... Um, what's his name? Uh, the director... Hinoba Hinoba Sekaguchi this was his first film that he ever he ever made so that produced both of those things produced much skepticism and nobody really you know didn't really want to go see it it was a little off-putting i think for most especially because it was a such kind of like a niche thing at the time the final fantasy property was uh, however if the movie came out now obviously with a few little tweaks and maybe updated for uh, audiences today, I think it would do pretty damn well, um, especially with a voice cast like this, and and also with a revolutionary computer-generated uh, filmmaking as well. So yes, my three films again were 2006's Poseidon, 2004, uh, 2004's The Alamo, and finally 2001's Final Fantasy. The Spirits Within. Now, Matt, I remember you saw the Final Fantasy movie. Did you enjoy it when it came out?
0: I did. I sh- I certainly did. I went and saw it in the movie theater, and I thought it was very good. Yeah, I was
1: blown out of the water when I saw it. So,
0: And, yes, I was definitely very upset when it got poor reviews, and people were like, oh, no. And I'm like, Gu- guys, what the hell are you? Oh, gonna... Yeah, so. Anyways, all right. Well, that definitely concludes our exhaustive Three squared. Uh, Clearly, we were very uh, uh, passionate and knowledgeable about our films that we were (laughs) going into, because normally a three squared doesn't take that long (laughs) from either one of us. So I hope that, uh, you know, if you feel as passionately about those picks or picks that you think were that Matt, Tim, you guys are crazy, you didn't get that, please let us know. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on that. And I know Tim would as well. Next week, we're going to be doing a Did It Age Well, and we're going to be featuring Don't Be a Menace to South Central While Drinking Your Juice in the Hood. That's right, folks. Do the weigh-ins still have it 20 years later? We'll find out. And without further ado, I believe that's going to bring us to The Movies! <laughs> <laughs> and due to some wires getting crossed and um, not paying attention to limited versus wide release, we will not be covering The Revenant this week. (laughs) The Revenant has been pushed back to next week, and it will be uh, uh, that along with The Hateful Eight. Um, But we'll get into that later. So this week's movies that we're going to be covering are, of course, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, It's been three weeks now, folks, so spoilers, I'm sure, are going to be spilled. Uh, Given the fact that it seems like it's already made $800 million domestically, we're pretty sure that you've seen it by now. And if you haven't, well, tough shit, I guess. Uh, The other movie we're going to be talking about is While We're Young. So... Where do you want to start, sir? Why don't we just save
1: Star Wars for last? Since I'm sure we we both probably have more to say about that one than while we're young.
0: While we're young, 2014 American dramedy film. It's written, produced, and directed by Noah Baumbach. Uh, it stars Ben Stiller, Naomi Watts, Adam Driver. Ah, hey, you know who Adam Driver is, right? And Amanda Seyfried. Um, and it's uh, it, it's about a couple played by Ben Stiller and Naomi Watts who have kind of approached a well I don't want to say midlife crisis necessarily but these are definitely people who have uh, come to a point in life where they are not as fulfilled as they would like to be and their marriage is also kind of on the rocks. They stumble across a younger couple who i more or less kind of strikes them as who as an idealized version of what they saw themselves as when they were younger and the two couples kind of form a seemingly unlikely uh friendship and they have things in common both uh ben siller and adam driver's characters josh and uh jamie right yeah uh jamie are filmmakers so they kind of have those kinds of things in common um and then the film kind of goes from there now i will say that this film is definitely pretty well paced and is overall well-acted, and I think it's kind of interesting, uh, especially in the case of Adam Driver, to see, you're going to see, like, completely different kinds of characters coming across, um, because uh, Adam Driver plays Kylo Ren in Star Wars Force Awakens, so it's really kind of nice to be able to have something uh, to compare and contrast with, but this is a movie that I felt, I think this is kind of like a true dramedy, higher class version of Neighbors. People who seek to relive their youth and kind of impart wisdom, but at the same time can't seem to get their own shit straight. And while I applaud that effort overall, I think, um, I think it got tangled up. Uh, a little bit especially in certain aspects there's one particular scene where um, they're kind of doing some experimentation if you will and with with uh, the drugs basically and Cornelia who's played by Naomi Watts so this is uh, Ben Stiller's character's wife kind of ends up making out with Jamie I think that while it's it was An interesting plot device, it felt like it was too easy. And there are certain things in the film that I feel uh, do that. Instead of creating a natural tension, um, it just seemed a little too... uh, I don't want to say predictable, because it wasn't necessarily predictable. But it did feel just like uh, almost contrived as just as just a plot device instead of instead of an actual narrative tool i will say though that this story takes a very interesting turn and while i certainly respect the film and like the film i really hated the characters in the story especially played by uh adam Driver as jamie because jamie is actually kind of a kind of a shithead he's kind of an asshole and Uh, spoiler alert um because it's important to the review so i apologize because there's no way around it um it's very nightcrawler-esque in that the asshole kind of wins and as somebody who you know in his heart of hearts really feels that justice should prevail (laughs) even though sometimes it's good to see the bad guy win um it really made me angry that someone who really took it seriously and really worked hard, um, and while he still had his own issues to work through, didn't get to win. And instead, the guy who was the asshole and uh, tripped it up on purpose and was fucking with everybody pretty much from the get-go is the one who's looked on as the genius and then ultimately gets a pass, even from Josh and Cornelia by the end of the film. And while I applaud and respect it it doesn't affect the rating in terms of like oh my god i hate i was really angry with that and and and, in a good way in a good way i felt that that was what it was trying to achieve um and so oh man i was just i was indignant um so i ultimately give this film 3.5 uh i definitely like this movie but the like i said the contrivances uh to the plot to move it forward especially for the exposition that allows it to turn and show where jamie is actually a heel i really feel are the things that hold it back other than that decently acted decently directed and an interesting story uh and you know sometimes the asshole wins what do you got there tim
1: yeah, that's definitely something that I that I appreciated about this movie, and I really liked what they were trying to go for, but I just thought that the story and the characters too many times get all caught up with creating plot devices and setups for hammy jokes and cheesy dialogue. And it's not just like those the, the jokes are bad or the dialogue was poorly written, but on top of it... But it's also the the filmmaker Noah Baumbach himself, who's it just feels like he's trying to actively convince the audience that that this is how people actually talk <laughs> like he's really 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 trying to convince you that this movie is mirroring real life so at times the pa- not i'm not the pacing but it's it's like what the movie's trying to accomplish or achieve just kind of gets all discombobulated and disjointed a little bit because you don't really you can't really tell if it's trying to be a farce uh just an all-out kind of comedy or a or, or a movie that is tr- actually actively trying to mirror uh mirror a uh, an older generation or, or mirror the life or the relationship between an older generation of a hipster and a modern day younger hipster i guess and how they would meld or not meld together so with that i just think the movie is good i mean there are some i mean Noah bomback is a good director he's made Uh, Many films that I did enjoy. He also made some, he's done, worked on a couple movies and made a couple movies that I I did not like. And you kind of get the best of both worlds in this movie. You have an interesting premise. um, You have overall really, you know, pretty entertaining and good filmmaking. But it's just the script that's just a little wonky. You know, again, he's trying to make you
0: uh,
1: trying to mirror or make you feel like he is mirroring something true to life and real. When it's it it, it comes across farcical or a little too farcical or if he's trying to be farcical or not so again it's just trying it's it's a little bit discombobulated and whatnot Uh, or maybe that's even what he was trying to go for i don't know maybe maybe he was thinking that much ahead you know that that is exactly what he was going for i don't know but i just give this one three out of five
0: i i recommend it i think it's good right on okay well then i guess now on to the, the revenant main event yeah <laughs> the movie we couldn't find all right so yes here we go folks the star wars it's time star wars the force awakens aka episode seven whatever you want to call it um we all uh yeah we all know what it is all right directed by jj abrams right we're good harrison ford mark hamill Token Mark Hamill, uh, <laughs> Gary Fisher, Adam Driver, Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, uh, Lupita Nyong'o, Andy Serkis, Anthony Daniels, Peter Mayhew. You know, a couple of times I'm sure. <sighs> um, you know, music John Williams, whatever. All right, so the film is set uh, thirty years after. Uh, Return of the Jedi, basically. And we find ourselves with Luke Skywalker missing. Actually, you know what? Let me stop there. I'm just going to tell you right up front, this is a four-star movie for me. Okay? I'm going to say that I really liked this movie. And I did enjoy it. I have seen it twice. I can still say that I really enjoyed it. But this movie has a lot of flaws. And a lot of issues. So, take that with what you will going in. And uh i don't know tim do you just want to go ahead and get your star rating out of the way as well and then we can just get into it or what
1: uh yeah um i'm just gonna give it 3.75 out of five so i i think we, we might be on the same page here i'm feeling unfortunately okay <laughs> all
0: right so all right now so the movie takes place um Third, of course, you know. Fuck it. This is spoiler. Everybody who's listening to this has already seen it, so I'm not even going to bother going over the thing. <clears throat> um, here's here here's the deal. Uh, I think that this movie did do um, a lot of things right for being Star Wars Episode Seven, Episode Four Point Five, or if you would prefer, Star Wars Episode Seven, Episode Four Remixed. Um. I understand why they did that and i get the idea of kind of the ring theory that they had going on um but i also felt that a lot of the things that they did right were hurt severely by um the issues that they could have that they could have addressed or just simply not had and a and nearly all of the issues come from Kylo Ren, not not acting. This is this has nothing to do with Adam Driver as 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 an actor or anything like that. It's just simply the character itself. Um, you have someone who is so dedicated to the idea of Darth Vader, and yet. Y- his mom, he's he, he literally knows that that's grandpa, okay? That Darth Vader is grandpa. His mom is fucking uh, Leia. And his uncle is fucking Luke Skywalker. So there's just absolutely no way that Ben doesn't know how grandpappy anakin turned out so i don't quite get the idolization of the dark side only of darth vader and what darth vader was ultimately trying to accomplish it's creating all of these it's creating all of this dynamic and twist that 40 seconds of dialogue between han and leia don't don't allow to be worked out not to mention you also are creating a character who it is pretty damn clear that while they are trying to do like ring theory and stuff, and they're giving you your Darth Vader-esque character, uh, I noticed that a lot of people were like, oh, but then he takes off the mask and he looks like a stupid kid or whatever. That's kind of the point. And again, subtle brilliance in there. um, Because he knows that the only way that he's scary is with the mask. He knows that he looks like a lost kid, and that he doesn't have the force, he doesn't have, and I don't mean, you know, the force, the force, I mean, but he doesn't have the force of will, he doesn't have that presence uh, that that is able to command everything without the mask, and... Again, that feeds into the whole Darth Vader thing, which I guess is fine, but still leads you back down the path of, we know how Darth Vader ended, there's no way he doesn't know that too. Then when you try and mirror that as you're creating, you know, the the reboot, right, or the remix of episode four, there's no way that you can get out of that when you have uh the general oh good do you remember the 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 general guy's name uh general
1: general, hux. general
0: larger than Sidious? no 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 uh no no general hux it's general hux general um, Andy circus <laughs> no dom domnoc Gleason. oh him the yes actual, he was good i think
1: yeah. he was my he was more villainous than uh kylo well, ren and that's
0: the thing is that yeah and that's the thing is that in you know, in uh, A New Hope, you had Grand Moff Tarkin. Right now, it was pretty clear that Grand Moff Tarkin was in charge, and while he and while uh, Vader deferred to him, as evidenced in the you know Vader release him scene, there was still respect mutual respect it was it was pretty clear that they had a that that they had a mutual command they knew their job they knew their role uh and they worked together to get things done here and even though you know Tarkin was in charge here it is pretty fucking clear that Hux has nothing but contempt for Kylo Ren nothing nothing but and it's and it's evident, and they don't like each other, and they bicker back and forth, and about the only thing Hux is worried about is whether or not, you know, Ren's going to lose his temper and force choke him, right, that, that's, that's, and, and that's not, there's no way that that's not going to just play out amongst each other, and it even kind of gives way towards the end when they start blaming each other for everything that's going wrong, D- then because that then goes back to the issue again another issue branching from kylo ren how the fuck is he in charge how the fuck does he have this station where he's got all this control and he is uh you know ahead of the story whatever and whatever command post that he has It, it just because snoke said so doesn't it doesn't give ren enough weight and it also makes Snoke look way more powerful than he could possibly be, given the information that we have uh, in the narrative, which is nothing other than the scrawl, st- the title scrawl, stating that the First Order rose from the ashes of the Empire. Well, that doesn't help us any. And how did these factions form? How did these? How did the Republic end up with the? first order as its standing army that it has to subvert through the resistance right and again then all goes back to how does ren have this power and also with ren homeboy gets fucking bested by an ex stormtrooper who's never even seen a fucking lightsaber much next picked one up now that still bothers the piss out of me. Even after watching it a second time, it really made me mad. Because he should have dispatched him, ultimately, right? Kylo does dispatch him. But he should have dispatched him right away. There should have been no way that Finn gets a gets a couple licks in on poor little Ben Solo. And that's right. I'm going back and forth between Kylo Ren and Ben Solo. Um, but then we get to him and ray fighting and it does the same thing again now one thing again subtle subtle brilliance that i like but still ultimately fed into issues was when you watch that fight between kylo and ray And you see how she does her diving attacks. That kind of makes sense based on how she fights with a staff. She's trying to translate that as best as she can into her lightsaber attacks. So the way she's fighting in her style, okay, I get it. And then you kind of see where Kylo's at. Because throughout most of the fight, he's testing her he's trying to see just how much of the force that she's really been able to manipulate and figure out and get to work based on the fact that it's just awakened in her. So I, I mean, so I didn't quite get that the first time, but the second time through, okay, that made a lot more sense. But then you get to the point where he says, Oh, you need a teacher. And then she's all like, Oh, let me get the force. And then she like proceeds to kick his fucking ass. Now look, I get it, he was weak and he had been injured a little bit and everything. But there should be no way that someone who's got this kind of power and this kind of backing and is able to like uh you know stop blaster bolts and hold everything and all the kind of cool shit that Kylo's figured out in the intervening thirty years after having been trained from Snoke supposedly, uh whether or not we think Plagueis is gonna come into play later on is for further uh discussion not relevant to the movie per se but also having had some form or fashion of training with uh skywalker as well and then he turns around and he's and he literally gets his ass kicked the this i mean it's like the simple solution would be she sits there and goes oh the force the force oh the force and then causes that crevice split to occur and puts them on either side of the ravine so they can both run away, right? That would have been smart. That would have been feasible because there's just no way you can have someone be this badass and then get just the shit kicked out of them by two people who have never have never seen a lightsaber in their life prior to theoretically twenty minutes, but twenty minutes ago. So again, there's so much cool stuff going on. And again, beat for beat with you know doing the things with uh you know episode four including tossing plans into a fucking droid and dropping them on a desert planet whatever um but they did some really really cool stuff as well and they had a really great opening and and establishing and establishing shots um you know where you got to see the results of stormtrooper attacks in episode four, you actually get to see the stormtrooper attacks and how bad they could really be and when they're blowing up people and just killing them indiscriminately. So you get to see different aspects and different sides of it. You get to see how Ray develops all this cool piloting skills and how she is so knowledgeable and everything. Um you know tearing apart star destroyers for her whole damn life uh all these really cool establishing shots made for a pretty unique even though the first couple of beats of episode four were there still made for a pretty unique 20 22 minutes then after that it just falls into episode four pretty much from there on out um so you can see where all of these issues are arising and i hope that they fix i hope that they're able to explain them or fix them or uh in some form or fashion address them but that doesn't make but that doesn't take away from the overall experience of the movie which was well crafted and had an again nice blend of some uh good physical uh special effects and not just uh, practical effects and not just cgi uh, also but good use of cgi mats and stuff like that and uh some fun writing and everything i mean come on the stormtroopers walking down the hall when kylo ren's pissed off at ray's escape and then they turn around and walk away i mean come on everybody laughed at that Uh, So I mean they have good There there was a lot of good in it And I think it was a very decent and fun movie overall I really enjoyed it But to pretend that it doesn't have its flaws Is simply ridiculous So I think I've killed it
1: (laughs) Congratulations Matt You have broken Star Wars Star Wars will now cease to exist It is now nothing (laughs) Because of your Eight minute review Nobody will go and see it. In fact, all people will go and demand their eight hundred million (laughs) dollars (laughs) immediately.
0: And I've still got to go see it one more time because I have to take my wife to see. Did you see? Did you see it?
1: uh, Have you seen it all in three D or have you seen it in two D?
0: The first time when I went and saw it, I saw it on the Thursday night. Of course, you know, opening night. Whatever. Blah blah blah. Uh, I did see that one in three D, and it was. I enjoyed it. It was good uh today when i went and took the kids uh, there's no way i'm taking my kids for 3d they're too young for that so we did it in 2d they all had a blast um my littlest one as soon as chewbacca chewbacca's her favorite character right now so as soon as chewbacca walks on the screen you just hear this one little four-year-old kid go chewbacca and that w- that was my daughter so <laughs> does she bump a microphone also when she says it she does yes yeah, she does she, Yeah, <laughs> chewbacca it was pretty good
1: So, okay, I saw this movie twice as well. Uh, Both times were in 3D. I saw it the Friday... I I guess the technical opening night. I I didn't get to see it on Thursday night. But I saw it Friday night, 7 o'clock. Grauman Chinese Theater. Second largest IMAX screen in the U.S. 3D populated by fans alike. And, uh, you know, the projection was pristine. Great sound. Decent seating. Um so I saw it probably at the best place I could have seen it compared to the second place or my second viewing of it. And afterwards I did have many of the same issues, but overall the experience was 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 entertaining and enjoyable. So I gave that one uh I think a, a like four or four point two five uh, and then I saw it again when I was back in Texas. Saw it on a on a on a at a Cinemark an XD screen in the three and it was curved. And I saw it three D again. Um, but I took my dad, so I wanted him to see it on the bigger screen. And they only had it in three D there. And uh, the projection was not good. The three D was god awful there. And so I was able to be nitpicky about it. So I gave that one uh, like a three point five. So that's why I'm giving I'm kind of combining the two and giving it overall 3.75. So it's a good movie. It is not great by no means. I just think there's too many throwbacks to the original films. There's a lot of hey, look at this type of moments. You know, it's it's what they call I guess Fan service where there's a lot of throwback throwbacks and whatnot. Uh, this is indeed a soft reboot, very much like how uh, Star War- or not Star Wars Star Trek was the J.J. Abrams one from two thousand and eight two thousand nine. So it's very much influenced by A New Hope and Empire Stri- Strikes Back, um, but it's a little too calculated for my liking. You know, that's I, I personally thought the Star Trek reboot. Was, was more of its own flick. Like, I, I don't know if it's because maybe the the fans are more critical when it comes to Star Wars or not. Therefore, Abrams and Kathleen Kennedy and Disney just thought, you know, we need to hook as many people as we can and keep them hooked throughout the entire film. Because very much like the first half of the movie, it's, there's just so many throwbacks. It's just a little too... It's, it's a little unnerving. When you first see it... You know the, the last few throwbacks get a little annoying, or, or is when it starts getting a little kind of buggy, I guess. But when you see it a second time, and you're really kind of concentrating on what really makes up the film, it really kind of gets annoying from from the first throwback on very much. And I'm not just talking about characters, but like how the characters are uh, are, are used uh, in, in various scenes. Uh, there, the, you know, uh, shots, for example. And even similarities in storytelling as well. Where it's not just trying to be reminiscent of the original films. It's just straight up, hey look, it's New Hope. Hey look, it's Empire Strikes Back. Especially with uh, w- with some of the character interactions with like Han and Leia. Uh, especially. But I'm going to kind of go through these notes real quick so I don't take up too much time. I think, Matt, you beat Kylo Ren to a pulp. <laughs> and and I I agree with you there uh him not understanding that that Darth Vader, his grandfather, succumbed to the light by the end of Return of the Jedi. I really don't understand how he doesn't already doesn't really already know this. Um, I thought this movie, in a way, reminds me of Jurassic World when it comes to the soft reboot aspect. However, what I thought Jurassic World got way wrong, this movie did get right. Therefore, this movie relied on on uh, tried to rely on good characters and decent storytelling, and not just overblown special effects and overblown action. However, I think where this movie does uh does kind of fall flat in in some ways. Uh it is best understood and seen uh via some of the characters. And I'm just going to go through a couple of the characters. Here, uh not only is is Kylo Ren one that you can really knock, but to be fair, uh he does do a really good job. He's a really good actor and I I think he does give the character justice even though he is very emo and very whiny and sad to where i'm not really scared of him or he's not really one to be feared of therefore and and also on top of that you have the captain captain phantasma character who is like the supreme leader of the stormtroopers and in marketing and publicity they really kind of blow the character up like "Ooh, this is a new star wars villain and she's only on screen for you know Five minutes, maybe. I mean, I'm sure it's more than five minutes, but it's very short. And she's only used as a plot device. So she's not... Her character, General uh, or Captain Phasma, nor Hux aren't really two characters to be feared. Therefore, really it's up to kylo ren to be that nemesis to be that villain and in this movie it fails to really do that to really establish him as a villain now what they were probably going for and after listening to matt's review i was kind of thinking about it that maybe they are going for well maybe maybe they're wanting people to feel bad for him and maybe understand him more as uh have a little sympathy for the villain in a way but if that's the route that they were going for they didn't really do a good job at doing it. They really didn't establish his character in that way... Via the dialogue or uh, or, or any... Or, or just, just any... any at, at, uh, via the filmmaking. Uh, so Kylo Ren... Uh, it's Captain Phasma... You have Chewie also... Uh, Chewie... It looks like he didn't age at all. I mean, with all the other uh, aliens... Like uh, General Akbar, for example who clearly had aged, Chewie looks the same. When we all know that the man playing Chewie can barely walk, you would think that maybe Chewie looks a little bit more tattered, worn, and and, and and has somewhat aged, maybe even a little gray, well, even. And that's He was six inches shorter. Does that help? <laughs> because what's-his-name couldn't stand up straight? Is that why?
0: No, no, uh, the guy that they got to do the action sequences, because Peter Mayhew's knees are shot. Yeah. Uh, is 6'10". Peter Mayhew's 7'3". Oh, shit.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. He shrunk in age, I guess. Um, R2-D2 and C-3PO were a waste, I thought. I didn't buy at all into the idea that R2-D2 is too depressed <laughs> and, and sad in that he shuts down just because Luke Skywalker left. I mean, how convenient that the only reason... That they have to go on this, I mean the entire movie wouldn't even exist because most of the movie is, is about this map trying to find this map that leads to Skywalker. It wouldn't there would be no need for it if R2D2 could work. or if there was anybody out there who actually designed an R2 unit, probably could have hacked into R R2D2 and maybe gained access to his inner you know uh, storage bank or whatever. I just didn't buy that whatsoever. Uh, Then you have General Organa, or General Princess Leia. Um, Let's face it, Carrie Fisher's performance was more distracting, really, than anything else. Her face had no expression whatsoever, and her line (laughs) delivery was pretty rough. So it was kind of difficult to tell why Han Solo... You know, you got an idea of why him and Han, why Han Solo kind of left her, <laughs> but you really don't have understand why he kind of still feels for her, especially when they had this emo bratty, uh, depressing, you know, looking and acting son of theirs. I mean, they're better off just being split apart, I guess. Uh, and apparently, Princess General Leia Organa didn't really handle the departure of Han Solo all too well. That she doped up or something over the past thirty-five years uh let's see here so i talked about that general organa r2d2 chewy captain phantasma um oh yes and you have a uh, ray i i i think ray she was you know for what she was she was a strong female uh, character i liked what they were going with her but her backstory is just weak and forced you know you know i mean though she is my favorite again she's a very easy character and doesn't really encounter much threat uh either physical threat or emotional threat other than her suppressed memories of her family leaving her on on that on that deserted desert planet it, it, again that it was just too easy you know there is so much story so much story that i think since she is kind of a focal point, a focal character, they should have spent a lot more time focusing on her. And I think that is a big strike against this movie with me, is her story. Um, I thought Finn, good actor, decent character, but I just his dialogue was a little too funky. It was just like a lot of him going... Wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. Did you see that? Did you see that? Oh wow, you know, just like a lot of those exclamations that my ten year old cousin would be making while he's playing uh what while he's playing that that whatever that monster game is on Xbox I don't even know what it's called um but it just sounds very kind of more childish and 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 than than really anything else I guess um the music John Williams's score. I love John Williams, but I think it's about time they move on. Music is very loud and bombastic. Most moments and scenes are very reliant on the music cues. You always know when the music will happen. The music works with the original movie because the moments in the original films were reliant on the filmmaking, not necessarily the music. And it doesn't also help that the music is very reminiscent of the original trilogy score many of the same cues from the original trilogy can be found here you had the loud french horns and all that stuff it 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 just kind of is a little bit annoying and this kind of also ties in with what i wanted to mention about locations is that the bar scene is very reminiscent of the cantina scene, where here, I think this would have been a great time to really show the progression of time or the advancement of time and technology. Uh, and this could have been achieved with not only the design of the characters or the layout of this bar, but also the music, um, where there were clarinets very clarinets very much like the Tatooine cantina scene there were clarinets and the same type of music was being played why couldn't there be something more relevant to uh to I'm not I'm not saying like hip hop or anything like that but it could have been something more modern sounding in a way just to show that time has passed advancement has been made in some technology and I'm sure that also applies to music as well um And then lastly here you have the ending, including the Death Planet battle scene. It's very much like A New Hope, uh, which was a little bit annoying at times because, yeah, it wasn't necessarily the big climatic focal point of the ending of the film. It was still there and very reminiscent and too much relying on the original films. But the main focal point, I think, of the movie is Han's death Yes, it was very effective, but it felt too obviously set up and didn't really matter to the overall story of the film. Why did it not matter to the overall story of the film? Because nobody really cared all too much about Leia and Han's love, you know, a rekindled flame love story or whatever it was during the movie, because there was only like forty minutes for forty minutes, forty seconds of dialogue between the two of them. People were like, ah, in in love about it or you know, getting all mushy about it because. It's Han and Leia. People were geeking out about it. People were being fanboys about it. Fanboys and fangirls about it. Because it was Han and Leia getting to see them reuniting on screen again. And then being together. And just reminded you of Empire Strikes Back. And Return of the Jedi. But was it good? Not necessarily. And again, this all leads to his death. Which was not effective. But the scene was well played out. And I, and I shouldn't say it was not effective because I was even like, oh, well, uh, you know, like kind of thinking that maybe Han would not die. You know, so in, in its own way, it was effective, but it just really didn't matter to the overall story. And then the very last shot of the film is, of course, the ending helicopter shot of Luke Skywalker. Why did they have to end on a corny little helicopter shot? You know, it was a very fancy location. Also, why not? Why not a truck shot? You know, why not a dolly shot into you know Skywalker's face, to where he just turns around and you see his face for one second, and then boom, credits directed by J. J. Abrams. No, it has to do. You know, the the looking at each other between Ray and Luke Skywalker, looking at each other still, looking at each other some more, helicopter shot and the awkward helicopter shot, and then it was over, and that's it. Yes. So, yeah, that's pretty much my review. I just really hope they don't continue with the soft reboot formula. It needs to be its own film. And what makes this movie work, again... It's all about the characters and not necessarily the special effects and crazy stunt choreography like in the prequels where they had these crazy force, you know, acrobatic aerial fight scenes up in the air flipping around and stuff. The movie does feel more like a sequel, which is always good and at least better than the prequels. So I stand by overall 375 out of 5 for Star Wars The Force Awakens.
0: Awesome. Yes. I and and uh, I do want to say definitely it was so nice um I think the I think the movie making world has needed a um great strong badass chick to kick some ass and for a while now and it's definitely good that we've got one and I also definitely liked um john boyega and while um i i will definitely am happy to talk with anyone who wants to talk with me about it the people who know me know how to get a hold of me <laughs> i will carry on these conversations for as long as people want to talk about it um definitely liked that we also got an amazing uh black character as well and it's just so refreshing to have these things and we got a twofer. And they're gonna fall in love. So we got that going for us as well. Um, but yeah, could we have another Death Star? Could, we, we should get another. You know what they should do for the for the episode nine Death Galaxy. Yeah, I think they need a Death Nebula. I think it, <laughs> right is that you know maybe go to Death. Yeah, we start with a moon, and then we got the planet, and maybe a solar system. You know, maybe maybe a death asteroid belt, death black hole, or death hole. (laughs) So many problems with that. (laughs) Like, how do you drain a star, and then the planet not die? Right? I mean, it's like, hey, we're gonna use this thing like three times, and then because there's no more gravitational pull because we destroyed the sun, it's just gonna like explode. (laughs) It's just gonna fly off into the galaxy. I don't know. All right. Um, Well, next week. We are definitely going to go ahead and cover The Revenant. We're also going to cover The Hateful Eight. I can't wait to talk about that because I got to see the 70mm Roadshow version. So I'm so excited to talk about Hateful Eight. Um, So we'll be doing Revenant, Hateful Eight, and Concussion. All theater movies. And we will discuss those next week. So without further ado, good lord, I'm staring at 158 minutes. I'm sorry, 158 minutes. An hour and 58 minutes. (laughs) Shall we do the spiel? Spiel on. All right, folks. Well, the music you've been listening to for our segment intros, as of always, is of course "Cries of Solace," our music partners. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash "Cries of Solace." As for us, we are of course the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can also follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can of course climb aboard that information superhighway and track tim on twitter if that's your heart's desire and don't forget you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to john boyega i get to say this acting careers don't come out fully formed not unless your name is jaden smith and your dad has done it all
1: take care cinephiles and catch us again next week